I'm Bruce Kennedy. I'm an alcoholic. And it's a pleasure to be here in Cincinnati. Uh, we went up to Louisville last night and uh, uh, a friend of mine did his fifth step there, John Mills. You want to stand up, John? <laughs> My wife's here, Robin, and his wife, Janine. You guys want to stand up for a second? That way you'll know if I happen to talk about one of them who I'm talking about. It was a, a good experience up in Nashville a year ago when Paul was up there and... Uh, I went up and I told everybody I pretty much didn't know anything and it took me about an hour to convince them and so Paul's invited me to come down here and try to convince you guys. Funny thing was when I had about five years sobriety I knew about everything and uh, I've been losing it ever since then for some reason. But uh, it's your privilege to be here. I live in a town called Nebraska City. It has about 7,000 people. And uh, so, uh, oh, we have a dance every once in a while, but there's not too many people show up usually. And I couldn't believe they'd have you come out and speak at a dance. I couldn't even believe that many people get together. When we was drinking, we would. But I know I lived in a little town, or close to a little town called Ashby, Nebraska. It had 35 people in town. It had an old gymnasium. And every Saturday night, they'd, they'd have a dance. And all the cowboys would show up off the ranches and all the cowgirls. And there'd be grandparents and little kids and all ages. And they'd go into this gymnasium to dance and they'd run across the street to the tavern drink beer and come back in it seemed like it was this big I know it probably wasn't they'd, uh, first thing you know some cowboy would be dancing with somebody's wife and there'd be a big fight and somebody would fall out of the balcony onto the dance floor and it was great you know I just loved it And uh, but I grew up out in western Nebraska riding horses and listening to Jimi Hendrix So, some of you people might not be able to relate to me too much, and that's okay. Don't try, because uh, my sister just moved down to New Albany, and we saw her yesterday, and I told her she was starting to pick up a little bit of that accent, and I told her, try to resist it with everything she has, because in, in Nebraska, our accent is neutral. You know, the rest of you guys sound different to me. <laughs> But we do talk slow, so that shouldn't be a problem for anybody. I, uh, I'm here because I like to drink. You know, that's why I'm an alcoholic. The best way I can describe my drinking is by describing the way I smoke pot. I know you're not supposed to talk about drugs, and I wasn't really an addict, but I love love drugs. When other cowboys was roping calves, you know, I was smoking rope, and I, uh, I, uh, I used to sit around in a circle with a bunch of hippies, you know, and me, and I'd watch this big fat joint going around, and I'd be evaluating how much they was going to get, and how much I was going to get. And I had a pretty good set of lungs, you know, and by the time they'd get around to me, I'd, I'd suck as much up into my lungs as I absolutely could, you know, and you know how harsh that was, and my eyes was watering, and first thing you know, I'd cough and blow snot out of both nostrils. 
my head would be spinning. I didn't know if it was a pot or I'd been holding my breath too long. And even the hippies were a little nervous around me. And in order to be a good drug user, you have to kind of be able to moderate. And if you're an alcoholic, moderation just ain't your deal, you know. And so I remember one time I had an angel dust experience that kind of describes what my drinking was like. I uh, was living in California in this hotel, and there was two girls that lived down the ways from us, and I'd been pretty interested in those girls, hoping I could get to meet them. I knew they was going to have to initiate it if anything was going to happen, and one day one of them stopped by and knocked on my door and asked me if I'd like to go try some angel dust with them. And, and you know, I'm kind of a social kid, and, and uh, I'd never tried it before, but... I was the kind of kid your mom never wanted to have, in fact. If you had come up to me and said, hey, would you like to try a horse tranquilizer? I'd have gone, sure, you know. If it's, if it's good for the horse, I'll try it. Hell. So I went over there and I watched him, and they had this tiny little joint, and they sprinkled some dust onto it. And I'm thinking, man, that ain't very big for three of us, you know. Of course, those girls take a little hit off of it, and I get it, and I suck about half of it away and pass it on around, and it goes around twice, and it's gone. I'm thinking, what are we going to do now? <laughs> so I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, I'm noticing my heart's racing a little bit, and I'm thinking, I better relax here. It's probably just a dust. And so I'm sitting there trying to be calm and listening to my heart. All of a sudden, I can hear it, and ordinarily, you can't hear your heart beating. And so... It got the concern of me so bad, I made the mistake of looking down at my shirt, and I could see it was moving a little bit. Once I looked at it, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. The first thing you know, is getting out of my chest a little bit and out into the room. And I don't have any idea how long all this took place, but I know uh, when I finally come out of it, I was stretched back on the couch like this, and... One girl was hanging on to each leg trying to hold me down. They were going, are you okay? And I'm going, oh, yeah, I'm fine, you know. So I got up and went on home. I'm sure I impressed the hell out of them. And that's pretty much the way I drank, you know. I just, I never had a reason to try to drink less. I, uh... Never wanted to drink less. I never, never drank for the taste, and I wasn't the kind of guy that'd walk into the bar and go, "Well, uh, give me a paps," and they go, "We don't serve paps." And I go, "Well, okay, I'll leave." You know, <laughs> if I would go in and say, "Well, what do you got?" <laughs> okay, I'll take some, as long as it's got alcohol in it. I like to get high. When I was a little kid on the ranch, you know, my dad was—he was a cowboy, a real cowboy. And he was uh, six foot one and dark curly hair. He's a great big guy. Uh, he had hired hands that worked for him. He was a master over man and beast from where I stood. He, uh, I remember one time he had his fingers cut off and he rode this horse nobody could ride. And, and I knew when he, he just got his fingers cut off the day before and I knew he couldn't hold on to them reins. And, He's, he's riding this horse out of there, and I'm just a little kid riding along with him, you know, beside him, and and this horse starts acting like he's going to throw him, you know, and so he stepped off the horse and walked up to him and kicked him in the stomach, and the horse goes, <clears throat> and he gets back on and rode away, you know. What, what am I to think, you know? I'm a little guy. 
was scared of my shadow. And I'm going, my God, I could never do that. And my dad, he always had me do things that I couldn't do. He was trying to make a man out of me. And he didn't do that to my brother or my sisters. I'm not too sure why. I guess he didn't want to make a man out of them. But, but uh, a lot of times I'd get hurt or whatever. This funny thing happened. This year we had a retreat. And I, uh, I've been through the steps before, and I've... Uh, tried to have an open mind in AA, but I've been pretty rigid most of the time. Thought maybe I knew all there was to know, you know. And uh, so I haven't always been open to new ideas. And what I've come to find out, if I'm going to grow spiritually, I have to let go of something. Let go of something I'm hanging on to. Sometimes I don't even know I'm hanging on to it. I'm a funny kid because I, uh, I grew up angry all my life. And a lot of things... Uh, would happen and I really wouldn't know about my anger. I can remember Robin going to me, why do you get so angry? And I'd go, I really don't know. don't have a clue. But I was at this retreat and there was a lot of guys I sponsored there and another guy there was that helped me. And uh, we were sitting talking and uh, he was asking about my childhood and I was just talking about things I've talked about many times before. And I uh, talked about in high school having to live in my car for a couple of weeks because my granddad wouldn't let me stay with him. And uh, we was just sitting there, and he goes, that was hard, wasn't it? And for some reason, when he said it, it just floored me. It just devastated me. I don't know why. It just, hell, I busted out into tears crying. I couldn't tell you why. And as we were sitting there, I told him, I don't know what's wrong with me, you know. I don't know why that got to me. We talked about it, and when the retreat was over, I dropped him off at the airport, him and John, and I was riding home with Robin, and I said, you don't know, I was trying to tell her what happened. It sounded pretty strange, you know? And I told her, you know something? I figured out why I've been angry all my life. I figured out why I've been angry all my life, because when I was a little kid, you know, I thought, well, I was a coward, and, and I deserved what I was getting, and all that stuff. And every time I start feeling trapped and like I couldn't deal with something, I'd get really angry. And a uh, funny thing happened after that week, you know, I asked God to help me, and I started running around making amends to people making amends to my old bosses. I mean, I've never been able to get along with bosses when there was a conflict at hand or anything like that. I'd always get really angry. And and I found myself telling these guys, hey, I realize you're no more deserving of my anger than anybody else. And uh, since the retreat, it hadn't really had any power over me at all. It's been the first time in my life. Of course, I've been in A for... 15 years and it's just now that I can say that I discovered something about my anger and it's kind of nice that that kind of stuff happens because you know there was a long stretch of time in Alcoholics Anonymous when I was asking myself is this all there is is this all the better it gets is this the deal go to meetings you know work with others get into service work and a lot of times I thought, maybe this is as good as it gets. So these last couple of years have been new for me. They've been, I always thought my first year in A was the best year, but these last couple of years have been real new for me. For some reason, I've been teachable. 
you know, I started to realize I just don't have all the answers. I know back back to when I was drinking still, I uh, my drinking story is no different than anybody else's other than the fact that I grew up in Nebraska. But uh, I know uh, I went to college, flunked out, got a girl pregnant, got drafted, kind of the normal thing. Tried to decide if I wanted to go to Canada or wanted to go ahead and get married and join the service. Wouldn't ask anybody for advice or help because I wouldn't want them to know how stupid I was. So, so I was always making them alcoholic decisions where it was either one thing or the other. Both of them were extreme, you know. And, and so I was, I was like a ping pong ball just bouncing off, you know, walls or whatever. And so I'm bouncing my way through life. I got married and got drafted and became a submarine sailor. I, uh, found myself out in uh, California. Had a daughter that was about a year old and we were living in a little apartment in El Cajon or Chula Vista and uh, had a swimming pool, you know. I wasn't particularly happy being a young alcoholic. I I wasn't particularly happy in my marriage. I certainly wasn't particularly happy being in the service. But I was happy about being a father. I really liked that. And I had this little girl. She was a year old. And every day when I'd get off the subtender, I'd come back and I'd play with her. And I'd take her down to the pool. And... and uh, I got her to where she could hold on around my neck and I'd, I'd dive in the pool at one end and I'd swim underneath the water the whole length of the pool and she'd stay right with me. I'd come up, people would watch, she'd just scare the heck out of me. She had so much faith in me, she'd trust me enough to take her underwater like that and just go. And it was a year later, we were living in Vallejo down by San Francisco and I was at a bowling alley and I remember we was uh, drinking and I... I grabbed her in my hands and I threw her up in there and I, she flipped over my hands and she landed on her face on the hardwood and she drove her teeth up into her gums and it did a lot of damage to her. It was the last time I ever picked her up. And I remember being in the bowling alley and I remember seeing all the faces looking at me and I remember the contempt I felt for myself. And I didn't have a clue what was wrong, I just knew I was terribly bad. And it's a funny thing, you know, about alcoholism. It kind of epitomizes alcoholism to me. Is If you'd have taken the one person in the world I didn't want to hurt, it would have been her. And she turned out to be the person that I hurt the worst. And from then on, we were just divorced shortly after that. And that was just a, an event in a series of events that was going on in my life. And once we got divorced, I know my ex-wife, she left... She left with this Navy chief, which was really a good idea when you think of it from her standpoint, but it hurt my feelings. And uh, I went home, and my folks would ask me, what happened, you know? And, and I wouldn't tell them. I told them, I'm not going to talk about it. There's nothing I can say about it that will make it okay. I was embarrassed, and I was hurt. And I'd lived with my grandma for quite a while, and she'd grown up through the Depression, and her husband had been an alcoholic, and she had done something different than the rest of us. Somehow she seemed to become spiritually fit, and I don't know how she did it. But when I, I went to her, I told her everything that happened, you know. And she listened to me talk about that, my ex-wife leaving and everything, and then she laughed. She goes, ha, 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 that little scamp, you know. 
and I felt better. I mean, I felt better. Because she'd seen enough of life, she just knew it's going to be all right. That's what I needed. Been a few times this year when I thought of that old lady because we've had some things going on in our life this year that ain't been easy. And so you get a little fear running. I get to the meeting and I'd think of my grandma, you know, and I'd think, well, it's going to be all right. <laughs> you know? You go home and things are pretty good. I think me and Robin has had the best year we've ever had in our marriage and the toughest, you know. Her uh, her dad had a massive stroke and we uh, built a wheelchair apartment in our basement and moved him out from Washington, D.C. and moved him in and been trying to help him, her and her mom, and she brought back a lot of old memories for Robin and he's been in a lot of pain. It's been a really tough deal and I found myself down giving him showers and he's crying and thanking me and I'm embarrassed for him and I'm realizing how precious life is and how precious my health is and you know I don't got anything big to worry about and I found myself trying to help Robin without telling her what to do that's been a hard deal for me there being a man I I tend to use the left side of my brain which I guess they say men are kind of compartmentalized, you know, and, and I have a tendency to think if you just tell me how to fix it, give me something to do, I'll forget about it and do it. And of course, women are a lot more spiritual than men, and, and she knows when I tell, make them suggestions, you know, that it's just a band-aid. She knows it's bull. And so I can never see why she'd get upset when I try to tell her what to do about it. Just this year, I finally learned it. You know, I just need to listen to her. I just need to let her tell me how she feels. And I think that's why our relationship's been better. And all that's happened because, not because I figured it out, it's just because I don't know nothing, you know? I finally run out of things to tell her. And, and so, I'm just sitting there listening, and all of a sudden I realize she's feeling better. She's loving me, you know. I can't never figure this thing out. I know I've been in A for a long time, and I thought I knew what it took to stay sober, right? I thought, I used to tell newcomers when they come in, I said, all you got to do is read the big book, don't drink, get a sponsor, go to meetings, you'll be okay. And then one day I read in there where it says, no human power could relieve our alcoholism. You know, my sponsor tells me sometime, it says in the big book, there's one who has all power. That one is God. If that's true, how much do you got? I go, well, nothing. And he goes, that's a good mathematician. <laughs> it's stupid to tell somebody to just not take a drink and read the big book and that if they're powerless. No human power can relieve their alcoholism. But I did it for quite a few years. Couldn't figure out why they didn't stay sober sometimes. I've learned a lot of things in hindsight in AA by making mistakes, telling people the wrong thing to do. Come to find out, I don't know what's right for you. I know when I got into AA, I was 
Well, my last day I drank was January 26, 1980, and Robin, she was a hairstylist. She was working at this salon. You'd never know it to know me. I'd got out of the Navy and decided I was never going to get a haircut as long as I lived. And I had one of them wash and wear hairdos, you know, where you let the shower hit you on top of the head and wherever it falls, that's the way you wear it. As a matter of fact, I was quite a catch, you know. I had a... I had a pair of blue plaid pants with bell bottoms I wore when I was going out styling and I had a kind of a blue suede looking vest and I had a pair of black plastic open mesh shoes. I'd wear white socks for effect and I thought I was a trendsetter, you know. We was talking about Norm Alpy tonight now. I used to talk about that guy sitting in the bar looking into the mirror with the $200 suit and 50 cents worth of chili spilled down his front with that Maybelline look in his eyes, you know. But I guess he thought I was a project. But anyway, it was January 26th and her... Where she worked, they were having a Christmas party that year, and and uh, so it was a Saturday. So I went down to this bar in town to play a little pool while she was working. I was supposed to pick her up at five, and so I did a little drinking, a little pool playing, and first thing you know, I did a little too much drinking, and the guy that managed the bar took me home, trying to sober me up, and I passed out at his trailer house. And he called Robin and said, Bruce ain't going to make it to the party, so she went without me. About 7.30 that night, I come to and decided I should go out and finish drinking. He tried to talk me out of it, but I insisted. And so I had an old 73 Pinto, and about 2.30 in the morning, I'm pulling out of the parking lot at this place we used to hang out, and I ran into the back end of a parked straight truck. Just ran right into it and stopped. Just so happened that probably the biggest cop in southeast Nebraska was giving this guy in a straight truck a field sobriety test at the time. <laughs> they said there was a big fight. I don't remember. I know uh, I'd had DWIs and I'd been arrested before, but this was different, you know. Back when I got, came to, in fact, I could look at my DWIs and I could see the progression of my alcoholism over the years. 1.3, or 0 0.13, 0 0.175, 0.275. Guy's getting better at it, you know. But I woke up in jail that morning because, well, this guy worked me over pretty good and drug my face over the concrete. And I guess I wasn't too willing. I never went to jail willingly. I was in a great fighter, but I always picked the most inopportune times to express myself. And, and uh, so the next morning when I woke up, I mean, I was pretty much physically abused. In fact, that night, I guess I, they gave me my one call, and, and I was talking to Robin on the phone, telling her about it, and I don't remember it. And she said she heard a crash and a bunch of obscenities, and, and the phone hit the floor, and a bunch of people hollering, and... I guess I kicked a hole in the wall at the police station. I don't remember. They put me to bed after that. And 
So the next morning when I woke up, I think I was in more physical pain than I'd been in in a long time. And plus, I had a serious hangover, and I uh, was in quite a bit of an emotional pain. I, something happened to me that day. I don't know what it was, but something was different that morning when I woke up. I'd woke up beat up, and I'd woke up in jail and stuff. But that morning when I woke up, I, I could see the exact nature of my alcoholism. I could see exactly what it was. I could see the progression. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that morning that I was an alcoholic. And you could have asked me the day before and gave me a lie detector test, and I'd have said, no, I'm not, and the needle, needle wouldn't even have moved. I don't know why that is. I always find out things abruptly, it seems like. I was like the cat that had sex with a skunk, you know. I didn't get all I wanted, but I got all I could stand. That's kind of a Nebraska joke. <laughs> but I don't know, when Robin came to get me that day, I didn't know anybody in Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know a thing about it. She came and we sit around and my brother come over to help me, who's uh, doing research right now for alcoholism. And uh, we called Alcoholics Anonymous. The only re I don't even know why we did. I'd never heard of it. And she she had told me she had an uncle that had been sober in A for quite a few years. And I had no idea what they did. I called him and I sit there and wait for the ambulance, you know. And thought there'd be a doctor and a psychiatrist. And, but a couple guys that looked just like you and me come up to the door. Well, they didn't look just like you and me. But I thought they looked a little redneck, in fact. And... But they sit down and started talking to me, and I don't remember what they said, but I'm sure it was just telling me about their drinking. They didn't ask me any questions anyway. They did ask me if I wanted to go to a meeting that night, and I said, yeah, I'd go. Funny thing was, on the way out the door, this one guy turned around and said, by the way, he said, if you got any pot or drugs, throw it away. And I thought, well, crying out loud. <laughs> I mean, I know I'm an alcoholic, but if I could smoke a little pot, maybe I could get through this thing, you know. But I was so scared, you know, I went ahead and threw it away anyway. We went to the meeting that night, and I just got out of jail that morning, and I was wearing an old Navy pea coat, and I had a Conoco cap pulled down to here, and I was pretty beat up. And you know when you've been drinking all night how it is the next day along about the afternoon whether you take a shower or not that stuff starts coming out of your pores and it smells more offensive coming out than it did going in believe me so I got to that meeting and here's all these people looking like you guys and up comes this lady to me she's probably five six ten years older than I am and she's in a nice dress and she smells like one of my aunts you know and she comes up to me and she puts her arms around me and she goes, I'm glad you're here. And I was just like this, oh, God. And I thought, why the heck is she glad to see me? And oddly enough, you know, I don't remember a word that was said at that AA meeting. The only thing I remember is that lady hugging me. So I tell some of the guys I sponsor sometimes, you know, I go, they always say God talks to us through other people. Well, if that's how he talks to us, how do you suppose he touches us? It's probably through the handshakes and hugs of others. I didn't like it. 
I didn't like it. It scared the heck out of me. I like seeing guys, newcomers, coming into the meeting and trying to give them a hug or a handshake. I've heard everything. Guys going, hey, I ain't no politician, man. <laughs> it's a cry for love. That's what it is. They're saying, hey, I want you to love me, but it scares the hell out of me. The guys I sponsor, I always tell them I love you on the phone, you know. And I told them down in Nashville, I had this one guy named Russell. He was a plumber. I just started sponsoring him, and he talked to me on the phone one day. And after we was done talking, I said, I love you, Russell. And there was this silence on the line. Pretty soon he goes, uh, I appreciate that. The world teaches us a whole lot of things that don't do us a whole lot of good, I'll tell you. One of the things it teaches us is that guys can't love each other without without doing something wrong, I guess. I don't know. I, uh, I got into AA and started going to meetings every night. Didn't think I was going to stay sober. I didn't think I had a chance in heck of staying sober. I looked at you guys and... You guys look good and you look comfortable and I knew I was crazy. I'd seen the word God and I thought, no way I can do this God deal. I mean, I'd grown up going to church and all that and I'd never figured out the God thing and I figured out early on that there was something wrong with me. Even as a young man, I knew I was a pervert. I figured God didn't approve of that okay. And so, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking it's just a matter of time just a matter of time and I'll drink, but I'll keep going to meetings because I don't know what else to do. I'd go to work every day and I was scared for quitting time because I didn't know if I'd go home or go to the bar. I'd been going to work and along about, oh, two months, you know, I found myself working at my workbench and I had a big pump case there. I was welding in it. And I, I don't know what was going on, but all of a sudden it dawned on me I was happy just for that one period of time. I was happy just floored me. I thought, it never occurred to me that I'd ever be happy again. And I was standing there thinking, man, it's a miracle. Maybe this thing's going to work for me. I think that's when I got the second step. I think that's when I came to believe. But you know, I've had some experiences later where I had to come to believe too. Funny thing about the second step is this came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore us to sanity. This guy that's been helping me asked me one time, he goes, what's sanity? I said, I don't know. Then how do you know? I said, I don't know. He made me figure out what I thought it was. What would sanity be like in my marriage? He said, well, me and my wife would be friends. Well, she'd be the, I'd be the best friend she's got and she wouldn't have to worry about it. She wouldn't have to wonder like it used to be back when I first got sober, you know, and she'd go, I think you like them guys in A better than you do your own family. And I didn't know why she said it. And this time through the steps, I was looking at that and I go, God, she oughtn't have to wonder about whether or not I'm her best friend or not. You see, I'm not capable of doing that. I'm not capable of love, you know. No love comes from me, believe me. Only fear. All love comes from God. And I had a lot of old ideas i got to get out of the way before I can start reflecting any of God's love. 
And as some of those ideas started moving out of the way, all of a sudden I started to have a loving relationship with my wife and my children. I'm telling you, it's a good deal. Most people quit way before it happens. There's a heck of a lot of divorce in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's too bad. Because I got news for you, we don't know a damn thing about relationships or love. Only what the world's taught us. The world's taught us love was romance, you know, and as our eyes would meet, my hormones would get to rolling, I'd think, this is love. She makes me feel good. And then one day when she didn't make me feel good anymore, I'd think, we're not in love. We're so stupid, but we never figure it out. We don't have any love to give. It all comes from God, just like the big book says. Deep down inside of each and every one of us is a fundamental idea of God. But it's covered up with so many old ideas. You know, everybody out here has a little boy and a little girl inside that says, I don't deserve this. I'm a piece of garbage. I can't have a successful relationship. I'm bad. I'm a pervert. You know? And so we don't know it's saying that. We just react all over the place. We get angry. We have arguments. We get jealous. We get suspicious. We go to A meetings and wonder if they're talking about us. You know? We get, we get mad at people because they're doing something we can relate to. You know? It's fun to watch. Once you figure out what's going on, you sit back and you go, holy cow. We're all behaving just alike. It's just that I may have a dark side and a good side. And if you're standing over there, you're going, man, he's a jerk. And if you're standing over there, you're going, he's a hell of a nice guy. <laughs> and the whole thing's about relationships, really. Your relationship with God and your relationship with your fellows. You know, and if if you could ask somebody how you doing in A, you just well say how's your relationships, because if you ask them how they're doing, they'll go fine. I can endure this. You know, relationships they'll go not so good. You know? That's how I've been doing for a long time in A. I was going, oh, I'm doing okay. I can endure this. It's a heck of a lot better than it was. You know, when's the last time you and your wife had sex? Oh, about eight months ago. You know. Is that normal? It is for us. It's not for us, though. It's not for us. I got the sex deal figured out. I ain't going to tell, though. About one week out every month, I just get damn good looking. But That's got to be it. No, but I, I love my wife today, and she's my best friend. And it wouldn't be any fun to go to a dance without her, I'll tell you that. She said, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I should be going just for a weekend, you know. I said, well, if you ain't going, it ain't worth it. Because if I can't come with her, it ain't fun. Who the hell do you go home and tell about it, you know? You get home, you go speak at a conference or something, you get home, you go to the meeting. Nobody cares what you did there. They don't want to hear it. <laughs> My wife cares, you know. She also knows I ain't nobody special, and that's kind of nice. Because it could go to your head doing this kind of stuff. 
but I ain't nobody special. I got a lot of problems. I did my first four step, and it was like a big confession, you know. And I, I, uh, I had all these secrets, and I put all my sexual secrets in code, just in case. I, oh, I was getting ready to do my fifth step, you know. As a matter of fact, the sponsor I had had been assigned to me, and I don't think he'd ever been through the steps. And, so he didn't want me to work him, and and I felt so desperate that I felt like I had to work him. So I was going around talking to people and saying, "What'd you do on this step?" I remember I asked this one guy about the third step. I said, "What's the deal about this third step?" I said, "I I don't know if I can do it." It says, "God, as you understood him." He said, "I, I said I don't understand God." And he goes, "Well, how would you rather have him be? Would you rather have him be a vengeful God that'll get even with you, or would you rather have him be a loving, forgiving God that'll forgive you no matter what you do?" I said, oh, I'd rather have him be a loving, forgiving God. And he goes, okay, you got it. I'm not going to ask him any more questions. I never did understand what, you know, when I, when I read the steps, I don't see what it says. And so I'm not sure if I see what it says today. But when I saw it then, I thought I had to understand God. What it says today is we made a decision to surrender our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood him. That was those first 75 guys that said they was 100, you know. And they said God as we understood him, which meant whatever sick, depraved understanding of God they had at the time was enough. So it doesn't mean you have to understand anything. It's like what she read in We Agnostics. It says all you had to do is to be willing to believe. You don't have to believe. Just be willing Hell, that ain't no faith at all. You know? Just be willing to believe. Okay. I'm willing. Don't know if it'll ever happen. And then one day, it just starts to happen. So, remarkable things follow. So, anyway, I went and I got ready to do my fourth step. And I thought I, I knew I was going to do my fifth step. And my sponsor didn't want to hear it. So... I had to go find somebody, and I knew I was a little different than you guys because I was a little sicker. And so I looked pretty hard to find a guy to do my fifth step, and I found this guy. He'd had MS, and he'd been in the penitentiary about 15 years, and every other word he said was a swear word. And I thought, there's a guy I'm going to ask to do my fifth step. He was the sickest guy I could find, and I thought, maybe he won't judge me. It turned out to be an excellent choice because he, he learned to read out of the big book when he got out of the, when he got sober. And so he said he'd do it. So I got all my four-step written down and all of a sudden this one particularly sexually perverted thing I had done popped into my mind and I thought, God, I can't tell him about this. So I said about trying to forget it because I knew you had to be honest and I thought, well, if I can forget it between now and then, I'll be okay. <laughs> Do you ever try to forget something? It's all I could think about. The harder I tried to forget it, the more I thought about it. So finally, I was just so crazy, I called him up on a Saturday and I said, John, I got my fifth, fourth step done. I said, could I do my fifth step? And he said, yeah, come over tomorrow. I said, okay, and I hung up the phone and I walked two steps and walked back and called him back and said, John, I can't wait till tomorrow. I think I'll be crazy if I don't do it right away. And he said, okay, come on over. 
Now, I don't know what he was doing. I know he's married and he's got a family, and it isn't always convenient to do those things. Believe me, I know that. But I'll tell you what, I never, ever want to forget that. He was willing to go ahead and do it because he knew I needed it. And it's always a good idea for me to remember that. Things look different. We were talking about it. They look different now than they did then when I first got sober. If somebody come in today and goes, I want 15 bucks, I'd give them 15 bucks. Today they go, I want 15 bucks, I go, I'll buy you a loaf of bread and a jar of peanut butter. Teach you how to write a letter to your creditors. <laughs> they don't like that as well, but it works a lot better. But anyway, I went and shared my fifth step with John that day, and when I got right down to the last, I shared this particularly sick, sexually perverted thing I had done. John told me some things he had done. I think for the first time in my whole life, I felt like a member of the human race. And I found out in Alcoholics Anonymous, a lot of people have done those sexually perverted things like that. I know John has. <laughs> All the way from Louisville, just for that. <laughs> so, you know, we got obsessions. I don't know, I, I looked at the fourth step again, and I get, you know, the first time it was kind of a confession. The next time it was to find out what my old ideas were. Today when I hear these fourth and fifth steps, I see two lists evolving. One is, what are the old ideas I got? And the other is, you know, who do I owe amends to? But the old ideas one's kind of tricky because you really don't know what they are. You really don't. That's why you got to look at yourself. And it's hard to look at yourself honestly. It really is. It's hard to look at your actions. You know, some people actually just block out things in their mind. And then one day they look back and they go, oh, I remember that two-year period. And it's, it's just something you're totally unaware of. But I'll tell you what. If it wasn't for the last couple of years... I would still be walking around going, is this all there is? And I got news for you, this ain't all there is. It gets better. You know, you can grow spiritually. Not everybody does. Not everybody looks. You know, a lot of us run around doing the same thing over and over again. We're into programs. Like, uh, you know, I go to 28 meetings a week and I'll try to do this. I know I'm keeping myself sober. Right? We forget that no human power can do it in the first place. It ain't me keeping me sober, it's God. God tells me what my purpose is, is to be of service to Him and to my fellows. You know? And so I know this, Alcoholics Anonymous gives me an opportunity to be of service, but if I don't do something spiritually, the people I'm working with don't go anywhere. They really don't. Matter of fact, they they usually go somewhere, and that's away from me. And so I found out, you know, the best way I can help them is to be looking at me. And it's I got plenty to look at because I'm plenty sick. I'll tell you a story I told in Nashville about my daughter. It was kind of a fun story. It was about a year, oh, I don't know, a little over a year ago. She was still ten, and and I was doing my normal thing. Usually, when I have problems, I apply myself. I try to fix them. I figure it's my obligation to set things straight. And if I have a problem, I need to work on it. And usually that's not a good deal. A works better when I don't apply the effort. 
It works better when I'm in neutral. But usually I got to try it first. And she was having trouble with fractions. And of course, I, at the time, that seemed like a major deal to me. If she had trouble with fractions, it could cripple her for the rest of her life. So I'm going to teach her about fractions. So I sit down with her and I told her how I learned fractions. And she didn't understand, so I told her again. She didn't understand, so I told her again how I learned them. But she don't learn like I learn, and it, and I just couldn't figure it out until my wife was mad at me. And she was mad at me. And so I'm thinking, well, okay, if they don't want to know fractions, all right. So, so I'm sitting down there one day, and Lacey's tan, and she's going to me, Dad, she goes... I'd like to get a job. And we're talking about it, and there's not a lot of jobs out in the world for 10-year-olds, you know. And I said, well, I don't know what you could do. Maybe you could start your own business or something. And she goes, well, what could I do? And I said, I don't have any idea. I said, you like to read? Maybe you could sell books. The minute I said it, I thought, that was a stupid thing to say, you know. And she goes, well, I'd like to do that. And I said, well, I don't know. I started backpedaling, and I'm going, you know, I don't think you could make any money out of it. If you was going to sell them, you'd have to get them at wholesale. And she goes, well, how would I get them at wholesale? And I go, I don't know. You know, I've wanted to start a business for years, but I've always been a coward, right? And I'm going, I don't know how you could. I suppose you'd have to write a publishing company or something. I don't know how you'd do that. A little while later, she comes in with this Nancy Drew book she's got. And she looks in the bottom, and there's a Putnam Publishing Company in New York, and it has the address. And she goes, I'm going to write a letter to them. And I'm going, well, okay. And I'm thinking, man, this is they're going to say no, and my wife's going to be mad at me, and she's going to be upset because they won't listen. And I thought this was really stupid. So she wrote a letter to this publishing company and come out and showed me. And so they went ahead and sent it out. And about three weeks later, this letter comes back. And this lady that's the inside director of sales of this publishing company wrote back and said, I'm really impressed that somebody your age would like to start their own business. We'd love to have you as a wholesale customer. Now, you know, things are quite out of control at this point. And it says, but you'd have to get a tax ID. And she goes, how do I do that, Dad? And I said, I have no idea. You better go talk to the accountant. So she went down and applied for a tax ID and got it. And I took her to the banker and she borrowed 40 bucks from him and she opened up a checking account and she got some... uh, business cards that said Lacey's Books and Gifts. You know, it says books are a kid's best friend. So she started selling books and uh, we went for a while and then uh, she sold books to everybody she could about think of and then she she didn't like making cold calls or anything. She kind of stalled out. And so I said, well, maybe we ought to have a meeting. So we sit down and we're talking about it. And I said, well, what kind of kid would like to do that? And she goes, oh, I know a couple kids that would. So she ended up hiring them, you know, a sales associate. <laughs> so this went on and she got out of debt, you know, and she got into middle school this year and she kind of lost interest in it. But so this business is sitting there. But do you think that figuring out all this sales tax, 6% sales tax, and 
whatever percent you get off if you buy the books wholesale and whatever you sell them at and give them a 10% discount. Do you think you could ever learn fractions doing that? It might happen, you know. And the thing was, I was worried about it, right? But all I really got to do is get out of the way. One of the things I found out about my kids is whenever I'm coming from fear, all I'm doing is telling them, you're going to fail. But whenever I'm coming from love, I'm going, God, you're creative. I can't believe how good you are. And you would be surprised at how much of a difference it makes in their life. The trouble is, I'm just doing what my dad did to me, you know. I'm just doing it his way. I'm coming from fear. And it ain't his fault. My grandpa wanted to make a man out of him. You know? The thing was, is that my children are precious. They're so intelligent and so creative. The only thing I can about do is make it worse. You know, I can only make it harder for them. i got to get in neutral. i got to get out of the way. The only way I can help my wife is just by getting in neutral. You know? I've seen a lot of miracles in Alcoholics Anonymous in a short time. But the biggest miracle for me is happening right under my own roof. And believe me, there was a lot of days I went to A trying to look like everything I was okay and I was scared to death to tell somebody, God, I don't know if it's ever going to get any better. Alcoholics Anonymous works because of God. And it is an extreme privilege for me to come out and share with you. I hope you have a good time dancing tonight because I intend to. Thank you very much.